to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up, he'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. G.I. Welcome to episode 72 of G.I. Joe Berg, where we discuss... G.I. Joe, we're totally the most awesome podcast about G.I. Joe in the world, yeah. and right now, <laughs> right now, we're we're in the process of discussing Arise, Serpento Arise, uh, the five-part miniseries from season two of Sunbow Cartoons in America, and tonight we're discussing part three, which originally aired in 1986 on the 17th of September, which is today with 30 years in the past. So, come back to us, right now. Tonight, I'm joined by myself, Robert, as well as Stephen and Kujo, and our, our good friend Paul, the robot, somewhere out there, destroying <laughs> stuff. Is he a battle android trooper, or is he a snake? Oh, in the cartoons, they're interchangeable. Seems that way, yeah. Kind of makes the bats a bit superfluous when the snake armors were not treated as armors but uh, as robots. Anyway, Kujo, what were we gonna say? I was just gonna say tonight, GI Joeberg is once again a triangle, albeit a different one. But Paul is here in spirit as always, and represented by a handy dandy robot voice. Hey there, guys. Uh, I am I here tonight to talk to you. I want to talk to Zarana. Shall we? Yes. Definitive hmm. sculpt of Zorana. Oh, is that right? Is this evening's definitive sculpt section devoted to Zorana? Mm-hmm. Indeed. Perhaps the coolest character from part two of Arise of Pentor Arise, which we dealt with yesterday. Yeah. Let's talk definitive sculpts. Earrings or no earrings? <laughs> Oh, seriously, it's a valid question. Earrings or no earrings, gents? I'm trying to look at the sculpt that I've selected. I can't see your ears very clearly. Mm. Well, which sculpt might that be, Cujo? Obviously, there's not too many to choose from. I like V5, just because it feels like the one that got her eyeballs right. The midriff is sculpted quite, quite shapely, which, I mean, I think that does add to that character. Well, it certainly adds to her femininity, yeah. For sure. And uh, I didn't remember that she had a gun with like kind of a uh, weed whacker on it. That, that's kind of cool because that, that predates like the Lancer from Gears of War, which, of course, everybody was nuts about. Mm-hmm. But I, I do like her eyes on that sculpt. So I'm going to go with that one. That would be the San Diego Comic Con exclusive, right? It is. It is. Mm, from 2011. Yeah. It's going to be hard to beat. Rob, what do you say? Well, I, I, I kind of agree with that as well. Although, Kujo, which, which version? The uh, original colors or the goth version? Mm, good call. I think you got to go with pink just because that says Zorana. I mean, the dark is yeah. cool, but uh, I think there's a character that is like that. So. Or if there isn't, there should be. It's Baroness on a bad day. Yeah, I think this captures her perfectly. I mean, as you said, you, you got the good midriff. Um, her outfit looks amazing. All the kind of tears and rips uh, in her in her clothes. Um, and yes, I mean the the original is, is is still quite good in a way. But I just I don't know, like the way that she's portrayed in the cartoon. I just don't see that version of her meshing well with the original figure, essentially. Yeah, there's something kind of fugly about the original figure. Uh, it's the boxy shoulders. I mean, it's very difficult to get the female form dead right in the O-ring era. I think Baroness got it right just because she's wearing a, a kind of a, an armored bodice. But if you look at the characters that are wearing just sort of billowing clothing or less, I mean, Lady J looks kind of mannish, and Zorana, she's showing a lot of skin, and it doesn't look right, man. It's a pity. How many midriffs do we have in the G.I. Joe-verse? Not too many, right? 
Uh, not too many females, definitely. <laughs> Probably just, yeah, Zorana and Rotek. Uh, I think a lot of the Dreadnoughts are showing midriff. Uh, Zartan, for instance. Obviously Ripper as well. Torch has got like a, like a leather waistcoat, so he's showing off some abs. My god, how have these characters not made it to the screen yet? <laughs> <laughs> and I think I speak for Paul as well. I think it's a unanimous version 5 San Diego Comic Con 2011 Zorana. You touched on all the key points there, Rob. The denim. I'd just like to say like the, the coloring that they got with that denim is spectacular. And the fact that it has a functional knife sheath with a very nice dainty little gold knife, that's pretty classy. The only detractor I could think of, because I love the face sculpt, the kind of pearlescence that she has on her lips and her earrings is beautifully handled. The only detractor that I can think of is why the yellow streak in the hair, like her French bun at the top is yellow. I would have preferred it to just be completely pink through and through. It would have been a better match to her card art. But instead, they, they went they went with a little creative flair, a little kind of original flair. And I'm a purist. I like my characters to be presented in their classic, classic appearance. So the yellow does distract me. Stephen, Robert, may I propose an additional question about Zorana? I'm so excited. Hold me down. Yes. In the cinema, what actress do you feel could portray her on screen? It, it, it can be in the 80s, 90s, just whoever you feel. This is something we needed to, like, go away and have a little think about and then come back. I kind of found Natasha Henstridge. Do you remember from the 90s, early 2000s? Remind me, what is her most notable? From Species. Oh, yeah, okay. Species, Ghost of Mars, that kind of thing. I just felt yeah. like her and... She could have pulled it off. Sure. Sorry, right. I didn't drop that bomb on you, gentlemen. No, no, you floored me, buddy. Uh, I'm living a bombshell now, but I'm thinking. I'm thinking hard. It might take me this entire episode to think of a, a decent uh, counter to that. But uh, what say you, Rob? Does anything spring to mind? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with that. Or kind of um, the character that, uh, what's her name, played in the GoldenEye? The crazy Russian chick who was getting people with the size. Okay. Yeah, okay. you could probably do it too. I mean, the kind of craziness that she brought into that role, I thought. Well, dude, the steam room scene? Nobody's forgetting yeah. that. <laughs> that was uh, over the top. When you said actresses from the 80s, I must say the first actress, sort of megastar actress that, that sprang to mind was Sharon Stone. Just because she's got oh, a, pheno a pretty phenomenal physique. You know, Sharon Stone in her prime, well, you know, she was the the kind of honeypots of the 1980s and early 90s. I mean, uh, yeah. one only need mention one uh, element of her filmography to, to get where I'm going with that. But I, I think she'd look great in a in, in sort of the punk uh, get-up. Uh, if you want a, a more contemporary choice, Charlize Theron, I hate to say it, but All right. know, her, her Furiosa was probably heading in the right direction. I don't know, I just want someone as depictive right. as Zorana should be, you know, a kind of a cheeky, sassy mistress of disguise. Uh, so maybe an Australian actress. Um, anything spring to mind? Oh, oh, what are we talking about? Harley Quinn, what's her name? The chick from know, Wolf of Wall Street. Margot yeah. Robbie. Margot Robbie. Yeah. Unfortunately, she's already branded as Harley Quinn. But Zorana has elements of those characteristics, and Zorana was around first. So, True. there's that. You know, I see elements, you know, Harley Quinn is a fractured psyche. She was a highly trained medical professional, and then gets swept up in uh, this world of crime and a love-hate relationship with uh, the clown prince of crime. Um, and in many respects, Zorana, who... It's perhaps just as disordered as her brother because of her, her predilection for uh, disguise and method acting and actually getting inside the mind of the person she's trying to impersonate. You know, that shit messes with your brain, man. So she could be highly unstable and, and very Harley Quinn-esque. So yeah, that's my final, uh, final choice, Margot Robbie, with her original accent. Thank you.
But I want to follow this up with my initial question, gents. If we're speaking O-ring sculpt specifically, do you go with earrings or no earrings? This is a question that has plagued G.I. Joe collectors since the dawn of 1986. <laughs> Which version are the earrings on? Version 1, the initial version, had earrings. you got to go earrings, then. Ah, yes. She looks kind of slightly more mature than the no earrings version, but the detail is stronger. She seems too, I don't know, blurry <laughs> in the no earrings version. Yo, Joe's Whenever got... you apply more paint yeah. apps, you know, exactly. that's always a good thing. Exactly. So if any of our um, esteemed listeners have a, I don't know, a, a beat up old version one Zorana with earrings and they want to send it our way, I'm, I'm open, man. Shameless. <laughs> You're all, all earrings. It can be just the head. I don't mind. Oh, what's in the box? What's in the box, dude? <laughs> <laughs> it's a head. <laughs> so should we get on with it, gentlemen? Part three of Arise, Sir Pentor Arise. We were left off with Vlad Tepes, aka Count Dracula, his castle coming down on the heads of Beachhead and Mainframe. What happens next? Well, I find this interesting because this is probably one of the first times where there's actually an extended cliffhanger in a way. Because kind of going halfway through the episode with this, but like the castle comes down on them and they kind of jump to a coffin. Into the coffin. But you don't know straight away whether or not they've actually survived. It's it's like halfway through the episode where they, they've kind of cleared all the rubble and they finally find them in there. And I kinda of like that. It kind of kept this tension going behind the the almost um procedural, you know, moving forward of the plot as the rest of the episode goes along. I don't know what you guys thought. I'd agree with you if um the action wasn't so fractured that you almost forgot that they were in there. When you've got so many protagonists, it's easy to forget where some of them are still inside of a, of a perilous situation. I just was derailed by the stupidity of that drilling vehicle. Like, I think it offended my sensibilities so much that I, it kind of derailed that episode. Well, yeah, we, we're, we're speaking about episode two now, but I agree with you. Why does it why does it offend your sensibilities? And then we, we'll compare notes, Kujo. This particular uh, year in the G.I. Joe, they started putting characters out in front of vehicles, not in them. And ultimately, it bugged me, like, as a kid, too. Like, yeah, the man. Havoc sitting out there, the Triple T sitting out there. That boar, like, comes into the room, there's no canopy. <laughs> These people are, you're just like, really? But I mean, I get, I get that Friedman is, is just, he's more interested in writing like a subversive, a more subtle story and probably inside jokes for days. Yeah, look, I'm so glad that early G.I. Joe toys put their gunners inside. You know, it's not like they had a helicopter where the pilot was sort of sitting in a completely exposed cockpit or, all right, or like all a, right. a, a battle tank that had a glass canopy up front and then, you know, your driver was just kind of like sitting up top behind the guns, you know, without any kind of protection. I'm glad that early yeah. G.I. Joe didn't... <laughs> I'm sorry, Cujo. Yeah. Hey, they, you're they, right. knew, they knew they were selling toys from the get-go. I mean, they, they, they got rid of their highly hyper-realistic American I'm just saying, I like the buzzword. That thing was no buzzbore. Yes. Yeah, it looked like a classic car with an open top, but with a drill bit on the front. I wish they hadn't tipped uh, the sarcophagus thing, because that would have been cool if, like, the place comes down and you're just like, oh, okay. But then, you know, you find out they were... Because they introduce uh, one of our good friends, uh, canine friends from G.I. Joe. What was it, Mutt? Junkyard? Junkyard. The dog is Junkyard. Sniffing it up. Yeah, a nice use of an animal companion doing what they're intended to do. You know, finding nice. where the bodies are. And they say they were down there for like 18 hours. That's That kind of harks back to natural disasters. It harks back to like 9-11, man. Like sifting through the rubble, not knowing if you're going to find bodies or survivors or badly mangled G.I. Joes. 
if you take the time to think about that moment, it definitely held some peril for our ranger and computer expert. What's what's your guys' 9/11? Since you, since you just brought that up. Um, we had a student uprising. No, it was an uprising outside. No, we didn't have a 9-11. We didn't have a ter- terrorist attack of that scale. But oh. we yeah, do no, have national holidays that commemorate certain tipping points in our own civil rights uh, struggle. Particularly one where a lot of students were gunned down. And I mean... That was like kind of Kent State over here. where. Precisely. How long ago was that? 70, oh man. I'm going to hand in my, my South African card if I get this date wrong. I think it was 1976. The Sharpville Massacre. Mm. Huh. Curious. Beachhead kind of once again showing his... I don't know. Beachhead is kind of one of those characters you want to like him because he's got a great voice, but you're very annoyed by just his, his kind of awkwardness socially. I don't know. He's like... He's like, what deodorant? Well, he's he's kind of proud. <laughs> he's proud of his 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 bravado and his manliness. He's like, oh, to hell with that stuff. And like some of the file cards even allude to characters not using deodorant because it, it gives you away on the battlefield. You can't smell like roses. Mainframe is is perhaps a bit too much of a pencil pusher at that point, expecting Beachhead to uh, <laughs> put on some cologne before stepping out into the battlefield. You know, what battlefields are they on where, where, like, in the cartoon where they are supposed to be stay, stay hidden? They're fighting Cobra. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably a conversation that needs to happen more in action movies. Like, dude, you are just wrong smelling. Like, go jump in a river or something. <laughs> I don't know if jumping in a river would help. Then you're wrong smelling and damp. And that's just two nasty yeah. smells. That's just... Two different flavors and nasty. But before we get too far away from pets, we don't see any more uh, animal companions in this miniseries, do we? Mm, it's a bit tragic, but Team 86 didn't really feature many animals, did it? Well, and about in the middle of the episode, we do get um, Polly helping out. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. So we turn from Transylvania to Siberia, I believe, um, where the October Guard are finally taking up the, the call of G.I. Joe with Yo Jowski, which I think uh, was previewed in the previous episode. Someone mentioned it. Hmm. Paul signs off by saying Yo Jowski. Yes, yes, that's true. He, uh, he alluded to what's going to happen next. And also, like, I think I was a bit confused at this point. Where I thought it was the bats shouting Cobra in response to this. But, like, a few moments later, I realized that there were actually snow serpents also helping out this mission in Siberia. It's a very confusing piece of, of plotting, I found, because I couldn't figure out why the Joes and October God weren't forming a perimeter closest to Ivan the Terrible's tomb. It turns out it's the other way around. The Joes are on the outside trying to get to the tomb. It's the Cobras who are closer to their, their objective. And that confused the hell out of me, because that's why the Joes wanted to walk across the the frozen moat. You know, the Cobras are pulling up the drawbridge, and the Joes are like, well, don't worry, we'll just walk across the ice. And then the bats shoot the ice to pieces and plunge into the the frozen water, uh, thereby cutting the Joes off completely from stopping the Cobras from getting Ivan the Terrible's remains. I mean, did anyone else find that passage completely confusing, baffling? Yeah, I think it was kind of like a badly handled situation. Because it, it kind of felt like originally, at least in the previous episode, that the Joes were quite ahead of Cobra in the situation. Absolutely. We don't see the Cobras arriving. Mm. Do we? And then all of a sudden, the tables have turned, and it's the Joes and October God that are on the outside trying to get in. Anyway, what do you do? Because, I mean, yeah, Duke's having a conversation on the steps about his uh, frozen hot cocoa or whatever he had in that mug. And he's chatting to Iceberg about Iceberg's hometown in Waco, Texas, when everybody knows that Iceberg's hometown is actually Brownsville, Texas. Uh, come on. And then Cobra arrived. But anyway, Cobra managed to secure Ivan the Terrible's very well-preserved remains. I mean... That guy had facial hair and everything, like skin tone, 
Wow, he was just a frozen popsicle. Anyway, they zap him with their box, put it into a fire bat, and off they go. Did you guys notice a little animation error by any chance when it came to the fire bat's pilot? No. Well, there's one shot, the establishing shot, where the snow serpent is handing over the the DNA retaining device. Let's just call it that. The D-R-D. <laughs> um, he's handing it to the pilot, and the pilot is colored like a eel. And then you cut to a closer shot with the canopy coming down, and you can see it's an AVAC. But... It happens eel- a couple times. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, it's, it, this isn't the most notable... Um, Faux pas. Ex- well, example of that happening. Um, mm. for, but I think the most interesting thing about the scene, for me at least, was that the snow serpents surrender. And, and as they're getting led away, they're like, why fight? We'll be freed when Cobra rules the world. And I don't think I've ever seen that in the cartoon. Like, Cobra surrendering. I mean, they're, they're always running away. Mm. <laughs> but they yeah. never surrender. Yeah, it certainly is a unique turn of events. But I, I don't imagine the battle android troopers surrendering, so they must have been all wrecked. I mean, it seems like the battle's over by that point, but did they all fall into the frozen moat? Anyway, I'm splitting hairs. So what happens next, Rob? <laughs> well, next uh, we, we kind of get a little update on what the Joes are doing, um, where they kind of describe other locations that they're going to be in. And I think this is the point where, where Hawk has a cool line. I think it's this point. <laughs> where he's like, we're in the dark now, but we got to keep punching until we see the light. Mm. He's talking to cool Sergeant light. Slaughter. And Slaughter's getting kind of frustrated because he's like, I wish we knew why Cobra was after this stuff. Like, what's the deal? And yeah, Hawk responds with that line. And Hawk at that point is airborne inside their transport plane as yet unnamed but did anyone marvel at how spacious the interior of that transport plane is like there's the central section where hawk and roadblock ironically i mean get your main machine gunner to man the computers why not and then there's like a cavernous area behind that like how wide is this plane it's almost as if they use the same uh, animation sort of backgrounds from G.I. Joe HQ. And just were like, man, <laughs> this'll do. No one's going to notice. It doesn't look like an airplane interior at all. It looks like a, a terrestrial base. Anyway, that just struck me as odd. The Cobra airship is huge in its own right. It's got its own like walkway above the, the cargo hold. Uh, and it's established as such. But the G.I. Joe plane must be of a similar size to have that kind of interior shot. So what's Sergeant Slaughter up to? Riding his triple T through the desert. Indeed. Which which takes us to the water, where we have a whole bunch of Joes sitting around in a lake, I think, or on the ocean. I thought <laughs> I it was like in maybe in and amongst the Greek islands. They're looking for Alexander the Great's remains which are oh, yes. submerged. Now, I combed the episode trying to get any references to the lost city of Atlantis because it seems like, at least aesthetically, that's what they were going for. Alexander the Great's remains somehow, erroneously, wind up in this sunken Greek city. Uh, so maybe that was the aesthetic they were going for. I know they were probably just looking for something exotic and at the same time, historical, because a very marked difference between Arise to Pen to Arise and previous miniseries is, is that, yes, this entire global world-spanning uh, race to secure things from Cobra it takes place, but all the destinations are, uh, within reason, uh, real world. So, yes, I, 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 I looked for a reference to The Lost City of Atlantis and couldn't find it. But as I say, the architecture and the fact that the historical figure they're looking for is Alexander the Great leads me to believe it's somewhere in the Mediterranean. It's a beautiful day. There are babes wakeboarding or what is it? Water skiing? Yeah, old school, baby. Water skiing. Shipwreck seems to have bounced back from his earlier heartbreak a mere, what, couple episodes ago? 
Uh, just took the Sarge a, a little bit of whip cracking to uh, snap him out of it. I guess. Yeah, he's on the rebound. He's he's on the rebound very quickly. He's like not exactly an endangered species, but definitely worth watching. <laughs> well, it's, not, it's nice to see a subtle arc with his character, even though he doesn't really do much uh, in the series. I like that. Subtle arc, Kujo? Well... He's living by the maxim that the best way to get over your ex is to get under a new one. <laughs> I, maybe, but I'm, I'm speaking more about like just the fact that he's in like basically two scenes, maybe? Yeah. Conversationally? Yeah, he's in so. yeah he's in two scenes, but they kind of they're still developing whatever they set up in in the previous episode, which is completely unrelated to the actual plot. Which I mean, I I appreciate that too. That um you know Shipper kind of like you see him developing. Well, he's definitely. Did you guys get the vibe that he had some kind of authority over wetsuit and leatherneck? Well, he's been in the outfit longer, right? Yeah, well, he's been to Joe longer, but I mean. His induction to the Joes was very casual. It was like, oh, you help us out of this situation, and guess what? You'll get your G.I. Joe badge. So he's had one season with the Joes, and already a previous chief petty officer is kind of calling the shots in the presence of a Navy SEAL and a gunnery sergeant from the Marines. So, yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> it's... he's the boss. It's like, we're in the water, it's my domain. I wish one of the G.I. Joe storylines would, like, at least take an attempt to somehow retcon why everybody in this military branch gets to do whatever the fuck they want uniform-wise. Just because I think that, like, that's outrageous, dude. Like, these people come in this outfit, they're tasked with, you know, keeping the world safe, and they just get to wear whatever they want. There's got, there's got to be some kind of reasoning that they could drop. They would just make that all good. I don't know. It makes things a lot, lot more complex because you kind of have to know not just the names of everyone else, but you actually have to know their ranks without having anything visually <laughs> to see. There's no like pips or whatever or like shoulder kind of insignia or anything that suggests. It's like, oh yeah, Shipwreck, he's, he's, he's above me. I remember that now. Well, it's one of the theories along the lines of rank, at least, is that G.I. Joe. Apart from the, the obvious ones like Hawk and Duke and Flint, you know, these guys who are kind of charged with more responsibility, that units are led in terms of bush rank, which means it's not the highest ranked member in the field who's calling the shots. It's the member with the most experience in that particular field. That's why Dusty is calling the shots when they're out in the desert. And I suppose that's why Shipwreck is calling the shots while they're um, in the aquatic arena. I like that. That works for me. But getting back to the point about uniforms, Cujo, hey, buddy, at the end of the day, there is no sound explanation. It's a concession because they needed to sell attractive-looking toys. And it, it kind of harked back to the earlier times of G.I. Joe where you'd buy the action sailor or the action pilot or the action marine. Like, figures were defined by their archetype and not by their individual file card rank and file, file name, you know, character. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure Kujo understands that. Along comes G.I. Joe, or G.I. Joe, the real American hero, and you've got these individuated characters, but they still got to look colorful and attractive. And that's why I, I'm afraid G.I. Joe only works as a property in the 80s. Because when you try and update it and try and make everyone look the same, with the same kind of, you know, ultra-high-tech, modern body armor... It loses the essence of what G.I. Joe is. What did you think of that aquatic battlefield? I think it was my favorite thing in the episode, to be honest. Yeah, it was very visually arresting, I think. Because obviously now they spot the, the, the Cobras, and the Cobras like, okay, we're going we're gonna to destroy this oil tanker. And then they set all of that alight. And then you go underwater as um, Destro and the, the eels kind of come and you know, they're going to go get the DNA now. And while this is all happening under the water, you have the, the oil tanker, like, sinking at the same time. And they kind of keep that going through the scene, which I thought was can you, fantastic. Can you imagine seeing that live action? That would be, like, thrilling. Mm, epic. It would be crazy. I mean, like, this huge thing is, like, sinking and everything's on fire. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful... Um, be the most fun I've had since Waterworld, man. I really enjoyed how the the shark, how how it like does a loop 
like a, almost like a, a tactical loop and picks up wetsuit and then mm. basically turns wetsuit into like this human torpedo that like springs into the battlefield. That's Funny you sick, should mention dude. it like that. <laughs> the shark toy has got uh, well where the torpedoes tab onto. It's the same size tab as the the back plug of the GI Joe figures <laughs> accommodate. So yeah, you can stick your divers onto the bottom of the shark. And I suppose that in many respects is what they were doing with uh, Wetsuit. I mean, that was terrific. Wetsuit is on the surface in a devilfish, and then he's like, I'm going to go help out Torpedo and uh, and Deep Six. And he goes over the side, leaving Leatherneck and Shipwreck to uh, try and rescue the tanker crew. But guys, what I want to talk about before we get too much further along, we have the introduction of a new vehicle, the Devilfish. And you know I'm always going to steer the conversation back to toys if I can. What do you guys think of this little one-man attack boat? I had that thing from the outset, or my friend did, but I was close to it. The design works, I mean, just because it's kind of part in the real world with those two props, but it still feels uh, really fun, kind of like an armadillo for the water. I I liked it. And it's hugely overpowered. I mean, yeah, two outboard engines for something that small. It's got to fly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's probably very fast. The color is interesting. It's kind of isn't the toy like an orangey red? Mm. Yeah. And with a name like out. Devilfish, I know our fourth companion Paul uh, confused it for a Cobra vehicle for a long time, and I must say, I think I might have as well, but I I was aware of it uh, quite early on, so I was able to put that doubt out of my mind. But yeah, it, it it's uh, it's an interesting look for a Joe vehicle, making it red. I'd be interested to see what the designer's reasoning behind that was. It was recolored as a Tiger Force vehicle, and um, looks pretty spiffy there. But red is a weird choice, because why? Because the Cobra Moray is maroon, and the Cobra Piranha is maroon. So red is a little bit too close to uh, Cobra Cobra coloring. Hmm, that's not bad. Maybe they got a little confused in the design room. They're like, ah, Cobra has so many of these things, let's just repurpose this for the Joe. I would have liked to see a devilfish that was just battleship gray. Like the bottom side of the hull is gray, make the top gray as well. I think that would scream G.I. Joe a little bit more than a red hull. That said, red is kind of flashy. It's a sports car of the water, essentially, with the open top, maximum driver visibility. You love that, don't you, Cujo? You know what? Minimum survivability as well. So yeah, if it was grey through and through, I'd be even more on board than I am. But it's it's a nifty vehicle. It's a simple vehicle. It's a, an easy sell because GI Joe didn't have a a hulled speedboat, and it's got the most insane like foot peg arrangement. Like, what is the person holding on to? How the hell are they not flying off this teeny tiny boat into the water? Anyway, practicalities aside, the removable engine covers were cool. As is the way Leatherneck fires off his missiles to take out Amore. He like oh. it's, it's like a it's like a touchpad. These ridiculous four uh, rectangular blocks, and he touches each each one of these four blocks with a with a finger each. He fingers them, <laughs> applies, <laughs> applies his digits to this uh, control pad, and <laughs> he does sort of a what is it called? A linked fire or group fire or I don't know. There, there was a term in one of those mech warrior games, just obliterating the moray with all four missiles simultaneous. That kicks so much ass. The, the animation comes in and out of the series like there's a ton of like continuity flubs, but one that we that kind of might have been at the end of the second episode, but I always felt like where the bats overwhelm. Duke on the stairs. There's like a, a couple frames where it really looks like Duke is in mortal trouble. And I, I thought that might have been <laughs> a cutaway or something. But in that speedboat fight, uh, I love when Destro ducks and then like those <laughs> missiles go over and take out that boat behind him and you see those two bodies just like carry him out of the vehicle. And he's just kind of like, whoa. I mean, that was very heavy metal. I liked that. That was a strong sequence, man. You had a lot of shots of, like, eels hitting the drink. or Not a lot, but, I mean, you had adequate sort of reaction shots. Like, the vehicle blows up from under them, and they, they hit the water. 
There's a lot of motion in the sequence, which probably turns me on as well. And action having a, happening above and below the water. Oh yeah, that that layered battlefield. That's it. Doesn't it's hard to beat that. I mean, you can do it in space, but you don't see it much on, on land. Yeah, uh, it's definitely you can't very do dynamic. That in space water is its own thing, man. It's 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 got a surface, so you've got floating vehicles and you know and players battling True. about up there. And then there's that great oney that shot. You know, I think it's when Polly's mouthing off about. Uh, Oh, Polly has a great line. Let's see if it comes to me. Oh, must have saved a lot on fire insurance. Uh, when Shipwreck is saying that Alexander, <laughs> Alexander the Great's um, remains are sunken uh, in the ruins beneath the water. <laughs> so Polly's got that great line. And as he's got that great line, you have this tilt down and establishes the underwater realm and torpedo and deep six. Awesome. Like, they don't really ever give the eels too much love, but I also thought, you know, them planting that bomb on the doors, like, that was a good action shot, because it shows them being cool, too. I like um, that the doors weren't obliterated. It's like, bomb goes off, and the doors, they stay for a while, and then they kind of cave. They just fall over each other. Yeah, they tumble down. Mm. And that grenade. Oh, the foam grenade, yeah. But, I mean, also the cool thing with the sequence is you get poly you know, another animal companion doing something awesome. I'm not just saying lines, but literally helping to lift people out of the water from the destroyed oil tanker. It's a big bird. <laughs> yeah. He's like flapping his wings and he's like, ah, I'm pulling you out to safety. That's two elements of animal action on this episode. Amazing. Yeah, you must I, I, be I wetting it. yourself. I am, I am excited about it. <laughs> What's next, Stephen? Well, well, okay. I mean, before we leave Atlantis, obviously Cobra make off with once again another of history's greatest military leaders remains. But Destro deals with the Joes by using a foam bomb, and then we see something that hey, once again I got to win it back for the toy talk. I always thought that wetsuits included accessory was a torch or a flashlight, I should say because a torch could be acetylene torch, but no, a flashlight, an underwater flashlight, and it seems to look that way on the card arts, but the cartoon, the animators, the designers, make it out to be a grapple gun. He saves the Joes from rising within this foam bomb to the the inferno of the, the ruptured tanker on the surface. He saves them from being burnt to a crisp by firing off a grappling line and pulling the Joes, the shark, torpedo, and himself uh, free by using his included accessory, which, yeah, like I say, I always thought it was a, a flashlight. You know that these cartoonists are playing it loose, but, like, I do okay. like that foam grenade, because of all of Destro's weird gadgets, the foam grenade actually would be cool to see, like, in live action, if, like, you, a bunch of people are just swimming at you and you throw this thing, and all of a sudden it just expands and takes them to the surface. Like, that'd be, fun. That'd be amazing. Incidentally, quite deadly to anyone using self-contained breathing apparatus. Because if you do a rapid ascent, you could suffer some serious health consequences. So yeah, if anyone is attacking you from above and you're underwater, a foam bomb sounds like a very, very practical weapon, if such a thing could ever exist. A hyper-buoyancy device that would send people soaring through the water at a very rapid rate. You would die. Almost as deadly as a uh, Mindbender's comment in the next scene, where we find Sergeant Slaughter assaulting Mindbender, or actually being assaulted by Mindbender and his Cobra troops, and uh, Mindbender proclaims, It's Sergeant Slaughter! Destroy that meddlesome mastodon! Best line of the episode. Can we agree? <laughs> Calling Sergeant Slaughter a meddlesome mastodon. You know what a mastodon is, right, Cujo? I hope so, brother. But doesn't doesn't Cobra Commander say something about deader than Disco, or is that later? No, that happens this episode. Yeah, that's, but... that's, that's a little bit later. Yeah, that is also a good that's line. Not... But Are you baffled by Cujo's response, though, Rob? He was like, "I hope so, brother." <laughs> you, you hope you know what a mastodon is. Well, I hope so too, but it doesn't really answer my question. If they're in proximity to a troglodyte, then I'm, I'm on the right path. Um, but yeah. <laughs> You said I'll play it, baby. 
Okay, okay. <laughs> Kujo, I'm going to disqualify Cobra Commander's line because he draws attention to himself saying it. He's like, oh, I should have been a comedian. Sorry, I was, doing, <laughs> That's right. I was doing a Mark Hamill joke of there, but you get my drift. I do. I'm just, I'm muting for a second, but I, I, I do agree. I do agree. You better be a mutant for a second. It's <laughs> a long second. I know. It's a big jet. Busy nights at LAX. I'm ready. I'm ready. Actually, Long Beach Airport, actually. Every other battleground has had at least four named character G.I. Joes. But Sergeant Slaughter is sent to guard the remains of Sun Tzu with himself, a triple T, and two green shirts on uh, LCVs. Local I'm sick of Slaughter. Vehicles. He's the man. He's all they need. Yeah, it, it feels pretty calculated that they kind of keep building Sergeant Slaughter up, especially now as Mindbender is kind of trying to acquire Sun Tzu's DNA. So Mindbender decides to go after Sun Tzu's remains personally. Clearly the Chinese philosopher warrior is very important to the Doctor, and it brings him into very close conflict with Sergeant Slaughter. But why do you guys suppose Mindbender is in a flight pod and the twins, Tomax and Zamot, are flying around in fangs? I don't know, I suppose it makes more sense for later in the scene when um, Mindbender has to duke it out with Sergeant Slaughter. Hmm, I suppose so. It becomes problematic to have a fist fight in a helicopter with uh, a blade whirring right above your head. Though it ha- I don't think it stopped the G.I. Joe uh, cartoon animators before, but uh, I, yeah, my sensibilities are pleased or more pleased at them having a fight inside of a trouble bubble than to try and uh, duke it out. <laughs> Pun intended, or not intended. That's a stupid joke. I'm going to leave that out. Wink, wink. You, you get to see more vehicles, which is kind of awesome. And also, uh, I think, I mean, this entire scene essentially is building up to the end of the episode. I mean, that's why you have only Sergeant Slaughter here and essentially only Mindman, the two named characters. Because he, he comes to the realization by the end of the episode that Sergeant Slaughter is what he needs. Because he actually, by the end of the scene, he fails to get Sun Tzu's DNA. Spoilers. Mm, the DNA um, box. And the D, DRD? Is that what I called it? Yeah. The DRD lies smashed on the floor. Yes. And that, that finally helps G.I. Joe to kind of realize what's going on. But the cool thing about the scene is that um, the twins destroy the Triple T, I think. And suddenly you have all of these pilots versus Sergeant Slaughter. Which brings us to probably my favorite animation flub. Sergeant Slaughter is fighting all these pilots, and then suddenly a viper appears in front of him holding a gun in one shot. And then it switches to the next shot, and suddenly it's another pilot holding the gun. Before, you know, there's just the pilot, and then suddenly this viper comes out, and then he transforms into a pilot. I found that very strange. Uh, if I may offer an explanation... <laughs> oh, shit. I think those always should have been vipers. Someone made an error quite early on in the construction of that scene. They were like, oh, this is a Strato Viper, and he's supposed to be deployed via the air because he comes with a jet. Well, they do, though. They come down from the air. But it's a misuse of the Strato Aren't Viper. Aren't they dropped off? A Strato Viper is not a paratrooper. A Strato Viper is a pilot. There is a difference. These guys haven't read the Parkhunt. This would have been a much better opportunity to showcase... The Viper. Because they say, deploy Vipers. They don't say, deploy Strato Vipers, or Elite Vipers, or any other kind of Vipers. It's like, deploy the Vipers. So, I think I think an animator picked up the wrong action figure. Friedman can't be troubled with those details, brother. <laughs> it just annoys me, <laughs> man, Viper, because I don't like seeing Strato Vipers being misused. I know. They are extremely, extremely valuable troops. This scene is like one of the, it's the closest thing I've seen like in the cartoon so far as like a rock video. You have Mindbender on this hill it, with a very phallic scene, by the way, drilling into this hill. If you look at the scene, it's, it's obvious. Um, mm. He's kind of straddling the drill machine. Oh, yes, he is. And we get to see the details on his boots quite uh, languidly. I mean, we see that he's wearing like spurs. <laughs> that was crazy, wasn't it? Well, it's part of the character design, but, like, they were really fixated on his boot detail. 
I feel like some of the like animators that worked on heavy metal might have worked on this just at brief moments, but this is definitely like one of them. And like Slaughter's like going through a gauntlet of different, you know, people falling out of planes, stuff like that. And it just uh anytime Slaughter fights in this this kind of cartoon, it just got increasingly more annoying to me down the stretch. And, and you know why. Mindbender becomes obsessed with uh, Slaughter, doesn't he? Big time. Yes, indeed he does. He gets to see Slaughter in action, like, up close. It's like, your rippling physique offers a challenge yeah, he's all about to mine. It. It's, it's like the only character in G.I. Joe who makes Mindbender's physique look a little inadequate. Well, by the end of the episode, he's declaring Sergeant Slaughter to be the greatest soldier of our time. Yeah, what the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, apparently, everybody forgot about Snake Eyes for five minutes. <laughs> but, yeah, I think yeah. the only time you really see Snake Eyes in this in this entire five-part, or at least that I've noticed him so far, was back in the episode two, in the Paris sequence, where he's kind of riding on the back of one of the Joe vehicles, just kind of shooting guns. It's like, oh, it's Snake Eyes. Hi. I think there's a reaction shot in episode one, but, like, yeah, there's precious little Snake Eyes, and that's... Mm. He just wasn't a major player in the minds of Buzz Dixon and Ron Friedman. They were probably having fun with these two, these outrageous characters. They don't help the G.I. Joe story that much. Well, Mindbender does, but... Yeah, no, for sure. And, of course, now we get to the point where um, the Joes come up with a very interesting story. They finally have a piece of the puzzle. Yes, and they come up with this this wacky theory that, like, Cobra's going to create an entire super soldier army that we won't even be able to fight against. I like that sequence because it was kind of like animated, like apocalypse. They're like, if this goes down, we're done. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. And you kind of see those cool little like computer, like images of like the clone coming to life and suddenly multiplying across the screen. That plays like, great. Very, um... synthway, by the way. <laughs> nice. I was just going to say, it takes me back to the thing and uh, a sequence where the, the doctor's kind of extrapolating like the, the expansion of the thing if it, if it escapes Antarctica. Nice. It's nice that the medical personnel of the G.I. Joe team had this kind of elevated status from not being just corpsmen or corpsmen, whatever, to being like almost medical scientists. They're the brains. Like, oh, you sent us this piece of equipment for analysis. I mean, what does Doc know about, like, a mechanical device? But he does know a thing or two about DNA. I suppose that's where it comes in. And I like the little as-you-know scene where Gung-Ho's like, DNA? <laughs> and Mutt says, deoxyribonucleic acid, the building blocks of life. I mean... Because the Cobras had to do that in a previous episode. Can you get a more on-the-nose little explanation than that? I don't think so. But hey, kids, you heard it on G.I. Joe. I liked that Gung-Ho didn't have a whole lot of ego about it. His his animation was he was genuinely curious. He's like, oh. He wasn't annoyed that that guy was dropping knowledge on him or anything. That's good teamwork. And he's grown his hair out. Did you notice he had, like, brown hair peeking out of the, the back of his cap? I'm sorry, I missed that. I always thought Gung-Ho had black hair, but uh, anyway. Our story is bald. I hoped he was bald, too, except with that handsome pencil moustache. But no, he's got some hair in this uh, particular part of Arise, so pencil Arise. Then we have perhaps, uh, and, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to assume this is your favorite scene in the entire, uh, well, the episode, but perhaps in the entire miniseries, where <laughs> Cobra Commander is railing against Mindbender, saying, You couldn't even get some Sue's remains! Your plan is... Falling apart. Something like that. <laughs> Deader than disco. Deader than disco. Oh, that's right. But <laughs> you're right. It was. It wasn't. It, it does like him self-referencing doesn't work. But but the twins the twins say something that I I it catches me right between the eyes any time I've heard them say it. It doesn't seem very in character. The twins refer to the creation that Mindbend is trying to to create. That if if he doesn't have the remains of Sun Tzu, that Mindbender's perfect leader is going to be a total dweeb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit of contemporary um, dissing. That's a total, like, Wall Street thing to say. Like, really? they'll just, oh, a yuppie, a dweeb. Okay, I buy it, I buy it. All of a sudden I felt like retconning what I just said. It is perfectly in character for the twins. I'm just not that familiar with that kind of character. 
never spent much time on Wall Street. Anything that the characters are saying, I just can't see past Friedman. After we listened to a couple of interviews with him, he's just having fun. Like, he doesn't really care. He's not, he knows what the characters are and he's just doing his flavor, you know? Sometimes his flavor is dead on, though. I will concede that. Well, he's getting better. I mean, if this is a second miniseries. Fourth. Oh. Crazy. Well, I guess it was a long road then. Well, how does, it, how does this episode wrap? Well, this episode wraps in China, isn't it? Is it? Are we back in China again? Genghis Khan? Yeah, Genghis Khan. Yes, you're right. Yes, it is Genghis Khan. We haven't gotten to him yet. Yeah, so we're in Mongolia. And Hawk's giving the rallying cry, saying, we've lost on every other front. We've got to hold the line now. And there ain't no mayor of Paris saying, uh-uh-uh, you can't roll tanks through here. We see maulers. We see armadillos. We even see something that they didn't even make a toy of. It's like an oversized missile pack rat with like a cylindrical central portion and four missiles and tank treads. Big green thing that mainframe's working on. I don't like that at all. Why couldn't they just use Wolverines? I know, right? Irritating. Give us something we can't mm. buy a toy of. You know that's my pet peeve. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it's... Cobra doesn't come to the party completely uh, toy-based. I mean, yes, they have the stuns and the hisses, but they obviously show up in their gigantic uh, aircraft. Their first assault is a feint. They pour on the full force. G.I. Joe is meeting them on ground and in the air. There's a nice Night Raven versus Conquest sequence where it seems like Slipstream is single-handedly taking out Night Ravens. And then he's joined by a squadron of other X-30s. You know how I like the Jets, so that always got my attention. But Cobra retreat, obviously. And then what? Later that night, they send in their massive aircraft, which is a suicide mission. Because what? G.I. Joe just trains all their guns and pelt that thing into oblivion. Or do they? Which is apparently also a fake. <laughs> this is like, oh, we didn't hit it at all. It was just faking. How did they not hit it? <laughs> I think Hawk even goes as far as to say, like, oh, it was smoke bombs and pyrotechnics or something like that. Like, Yes, what? he literally, like, oh, just in case the kids couldn't get it. It's like, we didn't really hit it. This is the reason why it didn't work out. Yeah, so none of the missiles or cannon shells or, well, I suppose it's all just laser fire at the end of the day connected with this massive target, slow-moving target. Anyway. But, of course, this entire smoke and light show is, is because Cobra has a double objective at this point. Not only do they want Genghis Khan's remains, but Mindbender at this point has, as I said earlier, re- realized that, the, that Slaughter is the greatest soldier of of our time, uh-huh. you know, whether or not that's true. <laughs> but he wants Sergeant Slaughter alive as well. So it's kind of like a little cat and mouse game between between them and kind of luring Sergeant Slaughter in. He just can't help himself. He races ahead of all the other G.I. Joes in, a, in his new triple P <laughs> and gets the remains of Genghis Khan just in time to kind of be lifted up into the air and onto the, the Cobra transport plane. I did not like that claw that descends out of the plane. I thought, yeah, clearly we're coming up on the 23 minutes mark. Uh, we've got to hurry this up. Let's, let's make it the most efficient method of, 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 of showing this um, coffin being arrested. And I didn't like that. It was, it was lazy. I'm expected to believe that they just send this fucking arcade <laughs> grabbing claw device those things where you manipulate the claw and like hit the drop button and it descends and tantalizingly grasps something and then releases it as it goes back up. Um, anyway, they managed to just like blind grab the coffin, which, whatever, whatever. Like I say, it was coming on up on the end of the episode and they had to wrap things up and, and do it in the most efficient way, so that, that was it. Anyway, Slaughter climbs onto this grabbing claw and gets pulled into the belly of the Cobra airship, where Cobra Commander's all like, kill him, and Mindbender's all like, don't kill him. So what do they do? They throw bats at him. Just throw those things at, at Slaughter that he knows how to just, like, absolutely mash into oblivion. Which brings us to probably my favorite cliffhanger, probably ever, because what I find normally with, the cl- with these cliffhangers is, is it's always the character in mortal peril. And you know that the character's not going to die. 
once again, yes, he's in mortal peril. He's about to be thrown off the Cobra transport plane at the end of the episode. The floor opens up. Cobra Commander's like, throw him out. And obviously someone uh, at the controls is still loyal to the commander and opens up the bottom. There are actual stakes in this cliffhanger as opposed to any other one. Because it's not just Sergeant Slaughter's life which is at stake. G.I. Joe's will win if Sergeant Slaughter dies because now they will not be able to create a potential. If Sergeant Slaughter dies, G.I. Joe wins and Cobra Commander wins because Mindbitter can't finish making Serpentor. But if he doesn't die, then Mindbitter wins, which I, I found really cool. You know, it's, it's not just, oh, this guy's going to die. It's like there's, there's more to this, this situation than, than just someone dying. And didn't they use Mindbender's plan to apprehend Slaughter and use his DNA? Wasn't that used as leverage against the loyalty of the Crimson God? It's like Destro says to Cobra Commander, they're not going to listen to you because they're already on board with the plan. And the plan is to get Genghis Khan and get Sergeant Slaughter, because then we win. Then we get Serpentor. So, like, you're absolutely right. If Slaughter was to go tumbling out into the blue and die, Cobra Commander will get back control of his organization, because all of a sudden the Crimson Guard will be like, oh, well, that's too bad, I guess. That's it for Serpentor, then. Okay, Cobra Commander, take us back. Please, please. We're sorry we pulled <laughs> our guns on you. Isn't it funny, though, that Cobra Commander slinks off, and he's still got three Crimson Guardsmen, like, walking with him. If I was Cobra Commander at that point, I would have said, like, oh, piss off. You guys don't even... <laughs> you're not fooling anyone. I don't have your loyalty, so fuck off. You go stand there with Destro and, and Mindbender. I can walk myself to the other end of the plane. Thank you. I don't need you. <laughs> well, him and Scrap Iron. Oh, whatever. Scrap Iron. According to Cujo, that's the MVP. For episode one, it was. Oh, really? Doesn't he have a, a, a shining moment still in hand? You're right, and he has that annoying little smile, too, that goes with it. The, the kind of plotting kind of fell apart down the stretch for me. What do you take from this, this sandwich episode? I think it was a very strong one, to be honest. In the previous episode... The best thing that it had going for it was the scripting and the sense of anticipation. Those are always two very strong devices to have in your back pockets. Episode 3 had action and stakes because we're coming to the end of this search for the DNA. And Cobra has a speed bump in their plan. So things are not going completely smoothly, but G.I. Joe is still on the back foot. It had the right dose of action, I think, and varied action at that. I'm going to battle to knock this episode down. Do you have mm. no lows for it? Well, my low for it would be misuse of the Strata Vipers. It's just like, um, I don't see these guys being paratroopers. I don't see these guys landing and, and having fisticuffs with with Sergeant Slaughter. Now, it's a minor quibble, but it's it's major enough for me to make it my, my low point. I think, I think I'll agree with your low point first. Like, a little better scripting on the team aspect of the G.I. Joe side, and you might be looking at, like, the, one of the better arcs just because the storyline is so interesting. But the, the usage of Slaughter just is too myopic. It's crazy. Slaughter is the curveball that sets Arise, Serpentor Arise, apart from the other miniseries. Okay, Slaughter huh. and Serpentor. Because all of a sudden, it's not about a MacGuffin. It's about two characters. It's about G.I. Joe's ace in the hole and it's about Cobra's attempt at creating theirs. Okay. So I can see that side. Yeah, it's like leadership is of paramount importance to arise, to pencil arise. It's like Cobra needs new direction and G.I. Joe needs a new champion. Well, no, that just sets it apart and that, that makes it more interesting watch now and which is why it, it kind of is its own thing. Uh, in the quagmire of the later or the middling uh, years of miniseries. Revenge of Cobra was good. Permanent of Darkness, not so much. This kind of broke the mold a bit for me. I got you. So that's why I can't hate on the Sarge that much. He, that's fair. He, he shook things up. My high point is probably just Mutt finding or sniffing out the coffin and then that just kind of, how long did you say that uh, Mainframe and Beachhead were trapped in there? 18 hours. 
that to me seems like a missed opportunity. Like there should be a comic that explores that 18 hours between those two guys, like not knowing if they see the light of day again or not. And just kind of like doing some soul searching. That'd be a great read. You could cut away to like battles they've been in, you know, on the come up and stuff like that. Maybe somebody will write that one. I'd be interested to read it. (laughs) When I originally watched this episode uh, a couple of nights ago, to me, initially it was actually my lowest episode because it kind of felt like, well, maybe this is on the back of the of episode two. It kind of felt like the miniseries was falling falling into that the same tropes, the old grind of of the other ones, where like go here, go there, go everywhere, fail, 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 Cobra succeeds, Joe wins. And I think the last episode was more indicative of that, where like you had all these different locations, Joe was constantly losing. But then as I kind of thought about this episode more, especially like with that kind of almost extended cliffhanger at the start. And the way that the cliffhanger at the end of this episode kind of feels more more layered and uh, I suppose has more stakes to it. And yeah, I kind of realized that I kind of like this episode a bit more than I thought I did. So I suppose my high is yeah the realization that this this kind of does break the mold of the other miniseries. Anyway, my high um, was probably that whole sinking oil tanker sequence in a way. Just the kind of the, the shot of the, the tanker coming down. I want to see that so bad. People. Like, well done. <laughs> anytime i've seen a boat sinking you know not not titanic because that was just too long ago and i don't, I don't really care about it but pardon titanic <laughs> yeah that came out right didn't it <laughs> but you know what i'm talking about that big boat that couldn't sink um titanic yeah well dude like that one uh what was that one movie where that kid was sitting on that boat with a tiger that scene Life where the boat's pie. sinking at night yeah Life. holy cow that thing was terrifying yeah. I, that would just be a great scene to see, like, people battling underwater, you know, Mortal Kombat, and in the backdrop, you just have these huge things hitting the boat and kicking up sand everywhere. And, yeah, yeah, just be sick. You said it, buddy. Why haven't they done it yet? <laughs> Am I they did do a nice scene at the end of that first G.I. Joe movie, like, the underwater, I mean, obviously you have all that other BS to deal with, but... They have tried a couple underwater. Although that kind of felt more to me like like they were trying to do Star Wars in space, but underwater. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose my my low was kind of yeah coming off. It feels so much the same as the other ones, but my high kind of pulls it through the kind of realization that there are things that are happening that are, that are different. It doesn't feel as samey. I think. Gents, I have no trouble giving this episode four stars. Or um. Shall we say four DRDs? DNA recovery <laughs> devices? Oh, man. It's missing that fifth one because, uh, unfortunately, Slaughter slaughtered it. <laughs> I don't think I'll remember too much, but the stuff that I stated, I'll give it I'll give it three DRDs. I'm probably going to give it four, weirdly enough. <laughs> wow. The meta stuff that was going on, or the kind of stuff that I realized afterwards that pulled it through... I mean, there's a lot of stuff I don't like, but there's a lot of stuff that I thought was different enough from the previous miniseries. I was like, okay, I, I, I can get into this. It's, it's going somewhere new. Um, and I think it kind of encompasses what you said earlier, where um, it's focused not so much on a MacGuffin, but on these characters themselves. One of whom gets the most indulgent close-up on his mouth I think I've ever seen in any animation ever. And it's kind of held just a little bit too long, I must say. I felt a, a little nauseous. And that's Dr. Mindbender, who is so pleased with his plan to secure both Genghis Khan and Sergeant Slaughter's DNA that he, like, laughs, and the camera just basically deep throats into his mouth. (laughs) It's just, it's something else. Uh, If if you have no other reason to watch this miniseries, make that your reason. What was the line that preceded that, that... I think he was just laughing. He was like, who is going to beat the Joes? <laughs> My mentor's a great character. <laughs> yeah, definitely. His look, this, the way that he kind of thinks about things, and um, his ambition as well. There's a reference to him being a, 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 a dentist in his um, previous life, shall we call it. And then in Zorana's file card, there's a reference to her impersonating an oral hygienist. Uh, in order to to uh, kill someone using specially coated dental floss, wouldn't it Good be God. funny if they came from the same <laughs> dental practice? 
like Zorana impersonated Mindbender's hygienist. Mm. Well, that that would be a great retcon if you did a series. Yeah. That would be brilliant. And that was part of what led Mindbender to experiment with pain because he just endured the loss of his his oral hygienist. The more I think about it, if we have a couple years of prosperity, and by that I mean everybody just gets a little breathing room, we should just like take a couple weeks, go take a vacation where we can just sit in a room and treat this like property like Game of Thrones. Because it would be so fucking good, dude. Like if you just treated all these characters that were just completely lethal. And you could kill people off all the time and just introduce new characters, you know? Mm. Because there's so many of them. Are you talking about us meeting up and getting our action figures out? No, like writing the series. Oh, boring. I don't want to do real work. I want to play Damn it, Steven. Damn it. Jeez. Um, North America. Always want to make a buck. I, I, it's not about making a buck. Like, I just, and I just want to see it. Product. Yeah, yeah. The way my mind works is if, if I can do something I enjoy and I, it allows me to be free, then that's what capitalism is good for. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't corrupt me along the way. Uh, somewhere along the line, there's the all-important word called profit, but you know, we'll we'll let you live in your your hippie understanding of what capitalism is, as long as you. I know like. I know a bit about the bottom line. California boy, cool. So how does this episode stack up against its uh, competitors? Well, interestingly enough, um, it's got another. Well, if I worked it out correctly again, it's three point six again. So part two and part three have the same rating. Which puts it in third place uh, among all the episodes of all the miniseries that G.I. Joburg has reviewed thus far. We thank you for joining us on our journey. We are effectively past the halfway mark. And if you've stuck with us this long, trust me, there's good stuff coming around the corner. So you want to stick around for that. This is Steven. And Robert. And Special Missions Cujo. And we'll be back again two more times, won't we? Yeah, exactly. We are not deader than disco. <laughs> I should have been a stand-up comedian, deader than disco. <laughs> Once again, I think I'm doing Mark Hamill doing the Joker. But, anyways, you know, you know where I'm coming from, gents. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Good night.